Podo. You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinson's.org.uk. Hello from the Movers and Shakers, back in the pub again for a drink, a laugh and a moan. I'm Rory Kathleen-Jones and this week's subject is Parkinson's in the workplace. Can you still hold down a job with Parkinson's? Will your employer let you? Will you even want to? But first, uh, let's take the register. Who's here? I'm Paul Mayhew Archer. I'm Jeremy Paxman. I'm Mark Modell. I'm Gillian Lacey Solomar. Nicholas Mostyn. Judge Nicholas Mostyn, who's going to maintain discipline along the way. We've got someone else along this week to guide our discussion about work. It's Guy Monson, a big cheese in the city. Uh, Guy, take it away, but uh, tell us a bit more about yourself. First. Well, thank you so much, Rory. It's just it's, it's so I'm so proud to be here with all of you. I'm a Parkinson sufferer. I'm about sixty. I, I was diagnosed about three or four years ago. My work is looking after money for charities, foundations, churches, etc., universities around the world. I just reached the peak. I just become the boss when disaster struck. I got the most terrible depression. It was all-encompassing. I had to take a substantial time off work. And my bright psychiatrist said, well, I don't think this is all depression. I think there might be a bit of Parkinson's. So off to Queen Square, and that's yeah. indeed what it was. Oh, there you go. Queen Square, for people who don't know, it's like the kind of, I don't know. Holy Temple. Holy Temple Holy of Temple. Parkinson's. Shangri-La. Shangri-La for <laughs> Parkinson's. Yeah. Just illustrated the problems, because first of all, the run-up to a diagnosis of Parkinson's leaves you with so many different worries, whether it's movement, whether it's depression in my case, whether it's the shakes, whether it's even constipation. How do you go at work to HR and explain all these problems? So problem one comes, these symptoms are hitting you, where can you go for support? My problem in stage two, of course, is once you're diagnosed as Parkinson's, are you still fit to work? And we'll hear some numbers from some of the surveys that Parkinson of UK have done. But more than 50% of people at work who have Parkinson's don't tell their employer because they're simply too frightened mm. about well, you wouldn't the potential job. Would you? Exactly. Why? Well, it's all right for you in the mollycoddle public sector. <laughs> <laughs> of course you tell your employer because yes. it's another way of swinging the lead. <laughs> but most people work in places where they could lose their job if they say, say they're ill. Because well, they couldn't do their job. This is a good opportunity to go round the table and work out how it's affected us at work. Jeremy, you kick us off. I mean, you were in the Molly Coddle public sector for, for, you for were, many years. You, you were Lord I Molly was. Coddle. Yeah, well, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> and I'm proud of it too. <laughs> but you, can, you blokes can look after yourselves. How did it affect you? didn't affect me in my capacity to work. But you gave, you gave a university challenge. I did give up University Challenge. I gave up everything. What about you, Rory? I managed to carry on for a, f- a few years, and then the BBC made me an offer to, to move me to Glasgow, which didn't quite fit with my lifestyle. So I did, I, <laughs> I did, uh, I did give up that job. But I'm, I reckon I'm pretty busy doing this fabulous podcast, writing books. But I run my own life. I don't have to worry about what my employer thinks. I have to say, so my employer jump. was perfectly good and offered me all sorts of gadgets and gizmos to help me type better, which didn't really work. I didn't feel it was an issue at work. The fundamental question is, for all of us, is did we jump or were we pushed? 
Yeah, I definitely jumped. Paul, what happened to you? Well, what happened to me was when I was diagnosed, I was sort of working at the BBC and then I became entirely freelance and I've more or less embraced Parkinson's as my full-time job. So I do a one-man show about it. I do these podcasts. You've never mentioned this one-man show before. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I sort of live with Parkinson's and it absolutely, it's filled my days and my nights and I sort of love it, except that I don't get paid anything for it. Can I ask Mark, I mean, how how would it have been with if you had some of the voice challenges you've got today, if you had been a few years younger and in the prime of your journalistic work? I think it would have been absolutely impossible to carry on. I mean, I had retired, I had jumped before that. But I mean, it's not just the voice, though. I mean, that would obviously be a huge challenge as a broadcaster. But it's also the typing, as people have mentioned. I think I was known, I'd like to say, for been pretty quick when I wrote script and pretty decisive about structuring pieces. But I mean, not the decisiveness, I don't think, has gone, but the ability to type quickly has gone. And, and what just, about the energy? I mean, I, well, I haven't I, had the energy to do the job I was doing Absolutely. Before. I was just going to say, even a simple thing, I mean, I started my shift pretty early. Mm. So I used to jump out of bed in the shower, socks on, yeah. you know, rest of the clothes yeah. on as well, into the taxi. Mm. And all within, you know, 20 minutes. Now it takes me about an hour to do all that. Yeah. And no jumping well, Have you changed your work patterns, Julian, to make it, make well, it bearable? When I had the DBS is when I left lecturing, I stopped at UCL, who were actually very good about it. Funnily enough, actually, the one thing they did get me, which was slightly bizarre, was a shares long. I don't know quite why one needs a shares long. Everybody needs oh, a shares long. I've got a shares long in my room on the shares. Oh, good, good. So no, the thought was that so I was doing two lectures and I just on a Friday, I think, and I simply couldn't, I didn't have the energy between them. So I had to lie down. But they got me the shares long to lie down, which I felt very elegant in. But um, frankly, I needed to go to bed. I needed to sleep between them. Yes, and that's impossible. I mean, you can't ask your employer to get you a bed, can you? So I think they did everything they could. Once the students realised, they were lovely as well. But I spent a long time, I think I've talked about this in previous podcasts, not telling anyone that I had it on the advice of doctors. And then the students were not nice at all when they thought that I was drunk or whatever else it might have been, you know, because I was trembling so much. That was very difficult. But certain things I find when I do do my show, I could do it all over again immediately afterwards because it gives me such an an adrenaline burst. It's just fantastic. I'm I'm never happier. (laughs) Judge, you probably, you're in the eye of the storm in terms of having to deliver a highly competent persona. Is Is that quite a challenge or do you have a wonderful assistant? Well, I do. The support that I'm given is in fact provided by the judiciary, by the judicial office, not by, as I thought it was, by the Ministry of Justice. And I told them as soon as I was diagnosed, I told my boss, the president of the family division, I was assigned this caseworker and put under a policy on judicial health and welfare, which involved me being sent off to the consultant occupational health physician who examined me very closely and made a judgment on my needs. And she stated that with the support of an assistant to take notes during court proceedings and voice-activated software, he is able to undertake his required work, his required role. These supports will be necessary on a permanent basis, and they should be reviewed to ensure that they are sufficient. So as a result, I was given a permanent assistant who I brought here today, and without whom I could not do my job completely. And she is as I is my right arm. Now, It's been pointed out to me that I've been treated extremely well. All the necessary adjustments that the law requires have been made in my favour. It may be that I'm given this Rolls-Royce treatment because of my position. 
However, I do think that it might be that the way I have been supported could be regarded as a model for employers generally. And they, for, they should, everybody should get a personal assistant. Well, not that, <laughs> but everybody should comply with the law to make the necessary adjustments to enable people with disability to do their job fully. But that is but the problem, you, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you can't do your job fully. You can't without an assistant. Other people may not need a full assistant, but they may need something that's very, very expensive. If you yeah. if you dig ditches for a living, you're uh, not mm. going to get another dig No, ditch. this is... Yeah. Well, when we'll have uh, a guest later who'll be able to talk about the practicality of making these yeah. necessary adjustments. But in in my case, the adjustments were able to be made. And as a result, I've been able to fulfil my role productively for these last three years. Have we got your assistant here by any chance? We have got my assistant, Sophia, here. Hello, Sophia. Hello. Yeah, you've been with me since when? Since October. And you're going right through to when I retire in in July, Yes, end of July. Sophia, pretend the judge isn't here. (laughs) What was it like? What's it been like? (laughs) Honestly, it's been amazing. Um, (laughs) It really has. It's great experience for me because I'm pursuing the bar, but also it's just, it's great to work for someone so kind who actually cares about my personal growth and my career development. So what do you have to do to get the judge into the shape he wants to be to give his great opinions? So first of all, I assist in judicial reading. So once the paperwork comes in, I'll have a good read of that and I'll produce a brief note which acts as a navigational guide. And then we'll discuss the case, the issues of the case before the court. Sometimes there's a question that the judge has for counsel and I'll liaise with counsel for that. Once the hearing starts, I'll take a verbatim note of everything. After the hearing, I'll assist in producing the order, reviewing the order, especially if there's litigants in person involved. And then I will draft the factual background to the case, also the procedural history. And then that kind of gets the draft judgment going. Can I ask, what does the judge do? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He has a very difficult role of actually making these decisions. He does everything, really. But let's be honest, we could probably dispose the judge. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Of course, when the judgment comes out, she is the proofreader to make sure that there is nothing idiotic in there. Yeah. Which does the buck stop with you? The buck stops with me, but I mean they've been yes. very good to provide. I, I could not have done the job as fully as, as is expected without the assistance of Sophia. But no, Guy, she... Guy, you didn't tell everybody you worked with that you have Parkinson's. I didn't initially. I tried to do it on my own without telling anybody. Then at client meetings, like all of you, everybody noticed my arm jumping around and people started ringing in saying, is this guy all right? Then I fessed up. Oh. And actually, it was fine, but it was it was a bit daunting, and particularly in the drugs that have behavioural implications. You know, if you're handling large amounts of money for the often the poorest in society, you've got to be on the ball. So it provokes some quite difficult questions. I, of course, like many of us around the table, are quite lucky. We're in the service sector industry. They're quite profitable industries. They can afford these. But if you're self-employed, what do you do? If you're really on the edge, income-wise, what do you do? And if you're in just tougher professions, and I think, Rory, you had some chats with some interesting people who handed us some experience that would help us all. Yeah, I've been speaking to a couple of people who had very different experiences, Alison Butt and Janet Kemp. First, Alison Butt, she had no complaints about her employer in the health service, but still decided to do something else after her Parkinson's diagnosis. I was a health visitor when I was diagnosed five years ago. It's a very challenging and stressful job on the whole, but I had a really good experience with my employer 
and my manager, which was great, very supportive. One of the challenges was the intensity of working with my clients and the, the difficult conversations that had to go on. And because of those, that stress that will be there, even underlying, my tremor would get worse. And in perhaps in, in difficult meetings like uh, child protection case conferences, it would get worse and worse. And that distressed me, but I was also concerned about the people that were there as well, how they might feel about it. So um, that was tricky. I took ill health retirement. That was really good process and very understanding occupational health department I sort of used my creative skills and went back to sewing and it was really nice to have a creative outlet I started sewing and selling the stuff that I sewed cushion covers things like that and then decided to go into business with my family who my son-in-law is from Ghana we started importing baskets from Ghana and that is just so different not having to go to work nine to five not having that pressure of constantly chasing your tail it happens in the NHS. (laughs) So you'd recommend being your own boss for somebody with Parkinson's? Yes definitely yeah it has its moments but generally it's just so much more flexible. So that was Alison Butt not too bad an experience but Janet Kerr a teacher felt her employer was totally unsympathetic to her wish for a changed working pattern. The only thing I changed when I was diagnosed with my employer was my hours I worked because I never had a day off ever with Parkinson's. And I thought, well, it's progressive. You don't know how long you've got, so I'll go job share. I went job share and I worked a particular pattern that worked for me. And it gave me the the days I needed in between shifts as rest. And I was at work all the time. And um, they changed my shift pattern after a year. And I pleaded with them not to. I said, this is working for me. They changed it and I lasted six weeks. The stress of it was quite traumatic. I'm finding it hard to express how disappointing it is that I was not supported in a job that I was good at. It was my calling. I loved the job and it was a career change later on in life for me. And it was just ripped from me. And that's why I fought so hard to try remain in that job. So Janet actually tried to fight her employer in the courts. Uh, She mounted a long legal battle, but she lost in the end. So what what do we think of those two examples? I mean, one person was well supported, but still had to change their job because, you know, it, it is a stressful condition to have. It is. And the other really felt let down in the public sector too. I think the problem with being feeling let down is that this is not just a physical illness, but the psychology of it really affects us as well. So if you are then feeling upset on top of having the Parkinson's, it gets doubly worse. So it's an absolutely disgusting thing to do. I just, I can't understand. Well, I suppose we can't go into details of the court case, but how how could she lose something like that? I think she'd she'd run out of time to make the complaint. Oh, she was out of time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it just goes to show that we are comparatively lucky There are lots of people in in lots of jobs where they don't get a sympathetic background. This, I'm afraid, is supported by some pretty grim data from Parkinson's UK. They said work was a common fear for people after diagnosis, with almost half fearing that they wouldn't be able to continue to work, particularly the young. Of course, takes us back to that session on, on early stage. The fear was highest amongst younger groups and those worried about their ability to continue to work as planned. Over half were concerned they'd be seen less able by their peers, and less than half went to their employees and told them what they were suffering. 
So um, I hope there are some employers listening to here that we need a slightly more generous ear, I think. Yeah, and of course, it's the worse the younger you are. Yeah. And, and we've all had that kind of are you drunk kind of yeah. assumption. Yes. Yeah, and I also, I mean, I'm a member of a local group in Oxford. And the committee that I'm on is full of really talented, really skilled people. So because you have Parkinson's doesn't mean to say that you can't do things. It's just there are misunderstandings about what you what, do. What would you do, guys, as a employer, if somebody comes to you and says, I've got Parkinson's, obviously you'd be sympathetic, obviously you'd try and help them. But is there a stage where you say you just can't do your job? I think you try, and it'll be interesting to hear our, our legal friends in a moment, but I think, first of all, you try everything to bend the timetables, help with the travel, help with the stress, obviously be able to do work from home and Zoom now is much better. And of course, HR departments are a lot more on the ball than they were three or four years ago because they've had to deal with mental health, which of course got right up the agenda. I think there would become a point where probably their peers would say, this is just proving too stressful. And either they've got to try a whole another job or be helped to find a, a different approach or career. We've not been defeated yet. But I can see that's easy in the service sector. If you were driving a train, driving an aeroplane, driving a taxi, doing skilled manual work, it might just be impossible. And you just don't hear those stories, do no. you? And you're self-employed. Because people aren't telling the stories. Well, presumably we... that's it, yeah. Because yeah. you might get sacked or Keep it whatever. secret. Yeah. So maybe people will be telling us the stories now after they hear this. Yeah, well, you'd like to think so. Don't forget, we've we've got an email, feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. Tell us your stories. Just briefly, Jerry, what would you have done on Newsnight if you had a bright researcher or someone who got into trouble with Parkinson's or found their, their workload couldn't be taken? I hope I'd have been sympathetic, but you can't, you can't generalise. Yeah. And the problem is with Parkinson's, there are so many different symptoms it could manifest itself in in way A. It could manifest itself in way, way W. So we're very lucky to have uh, Peter McRoberts, a leading employment lawyer from Payne Hicks Beach here with us. You heard the conversations going on before. Set us straight, first of all, on what the legals say, both employed and self-employed, about how you should be treated. All right. Well, first thing is that you have to establish whether somebody has the protection of the disability legislation. And that comes down to the facts, the degree to which they're affected and whether they satisfy the statutory definition, which is a physical or mental impairment which has a substantial and long-term adverse effect on a person's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. So Parkinson's is difficult because it's progressive. As Jeremy said, it progresses at different rates and in different ways. And so it is a question of degree and you have to look at the facts closely. What are your rights? What can the law expect your employer to do for you? Well, the disability legislation differs from other forms of discrimination law in that if you satisfy the definition, the employer has a positive duty to make reasonable adjustments to offset the disadvantages you have. Now, the Equality Act doesn't require an employer to employ somebody who can't do the job. The idea is that you make reasonable adjustments to facilitate them doing the job. Now, those reasonable adjustments could be any number of things, but the important thing is the employer has to know that the person has a disability. We've got to fess up. Yeah, because otherwise you can't hold your employer to account. You have to, the employer has to actually know or has to have sufficient information to draw that conclusion that somebody has a disability. When does time start to run? Well, it's when you tell when, when you, you tell, tell the employer, yes. And then I mean, how long do you have to do 
Well, the duty is imposed immediately, and it's when the employer breaches that duty that the three-month time limit begins to run. a three-month time limit from, yes. from the time of breach. From time of breach. But it's quite complicated, isn't it? Because you can say, I've got Parkinson's, and then they say, well, what does that mean exactly? And certainly in my case, I didn't know quite what it meant in, because it's different symptoms crop up at different times and nobody really knows. I think the important thing is, yes, tell HR, but before you do that, you should get the best medical advice, whether that's through the NHS or if it's available to you privately, uh-huh. so that when you go to HR, you've got credibility and you've got medical records to You support need a note from your doctor. <laughs> well, you just need to show that you have gone to a doctor, that there is something that merited attention. And that informs HR, and therefore it begins to introduce the idea of you having a condition which might need support. Now, the symptoms, as you mentioned earlier, might include depression or an anxiety disorder. Stress is not a, a mental impairment in the eyes of the law. It has to be it's an anxiety disorder or depression. You get varying degrees of depression, obviously. But that seems to be a common symptom. Have you had cases? Have you seen cases uh, I, out there? That's my main line of work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how have people been treated in your experience? It varies a lot, but um, I think the important thing is to get the medical advice and the legal advice at an early stage. If you're on a manual job, that's not so easily done. Uh, lawyers, some lawyers are sympathetic <laughs> and helpful. The reasonable adjustment, does that import uh, a financial aspect? Well, it could be as an your case, Sir Nicholas, uh, getting an assistant, or if you say in a manual job, maybe they would put you on light duties. You know, every case is different. Every job is different. And if they cut you down, say, to half time, do you then have to take the half time salary that goes with that? You would, yes, yes. Hmm. But being in employment uh, gives you access or potentially gives you access to important benefits like private health care or long-term sickness pay, which is usually about two-thirds of your normal pay. So if you can't do your job because of the illness, you may have access to these benefits, but you have to be employed to get access. So if an employer promises these benefits, the employer can't dismiss you because you're ill, because that'd be taking away specifically what you gave the benefit for, Mm. but it means that it covers you if you really can't do the job. So reasonable adjustments if you can do the job, and if you're fortunate to have permanent health insurance, you get an income if you can't do the job. What remedies does the tribunal can it award? It can award, well, declarations, which are embarrassing for the employer, and compensation, and compensation for injury to feelings or for personal injury. Oh, and yeah. are these things, I mean, are they quite complicated and complicated issues to go through? I think you need somebody who does do this work routinely anyway uh, you know it's obviously good if you can get access to a specialist employment lawyer yeah because one of the other symptoms of Parkinson's is apathy so (laughs) you know I just can't be bothered with this anymore well I'd emphasize again look you can't hold your employer responsible if the employer doesn't know and once the employer knows that employer has this positive duty to make adjustments. Also, the employer can't just sit back and leave it to you to say what the reasonable adjustments are. The employer has to make inquiries 
the burden is not on you after that. Dare I ask, is there anything you can do for for the self-employed? Do they have any rights? Are there any support programs or anything they can access? Because it must be very frightening if you're a, in the building trade, you're, a, you're carrying all the stuff. As we said, you're a train driver or a regular driver. Yeah, unfortunately, you are at risk there, and you um, come down to whether you've got insurance and so on. So uh, what have we all learned? Jeremy, have you, do you feel better informed now about your, your rights at work? Yeah, I, I always assume one had no rights at work, and one does have some rights at work, but then I don't think they would have worked on Newsnight. Why not? Because I don't see that I could have expected that they would provide any kind of relief. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's reassuring to hear that there are legal remedies and there are employers who are trying very hard to help people. But I think, personally, that it would just be too difficult carrying on for a lot of people. Actually, I was going to ask you, Rory, because you seem to be going gangbusters at the moment with all your podcasting here and uh, yeah, I mean, various I, different bits. I was thinking what I could actually do with is an assistant like the judge has because Can't what I do find is not- I, I, I can do quite a lot of work, but I do it much more slowly. And my worst thing is organising my diary. And I think yes, that, makes that, that having the organisational skills, I don't know whether I always had them, but I think Parkinson's has taken them away. And, and then also you get the short-term memory and tired. Loss. I open my diary to put something in, and then I realise I can't remember what I'm putting in my diary. And can you yeah. read yeah. it anyway? <laughs> because you're writing I, things. Just, and does it go in the right yeah. day? I mean, yeah. I'm forever putting yeah. things in the, in the wrong, wrong day. day. Yeah. yeah. There's some hope, isn't there? Because Gillian, you and Paul have basically reinvented yourselves in new jobs that you seem to be well equipped to excel in. Well, I mean, it's odd, this thing about some of the side effect of the drugs, which gives some of us a huge creativity boost. So, yeah. And I've heard that some people don't want to give up the drugs because of that, you know. So for me, yes. I mean, it's slightly scary to starting out on something completely new, but exciting, you know. Well, um, yeah. I feel I'm we, in a very privileged position yeah. you know, with you and with the ability to, to speak out and say things. And I, I feel for the people who don't have a voice. Yes. That's yes. what concerns me. And the people, you know, who have a difficult job, who are not employed by considerate employers. So, Rory, we've probably learned how you could have one... produced the Vicar of Dibley if you'd been 100% suffering from Parkinson's, could you? Well, I don't know. I've, I've written my show since having Parkinson's and I've written a film since yeah, having Parkinson's. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the law requires reasonable adjustments to be made for people who are suffering from disability. But at the end of the day, I think the decision is, has been taken by all of us. Mine is perspective. Everybody else's has happened to jump rather than be pushed. To move on. To move on. Yes. Mm. We've got here, I mentioned in a previous podcast, the legendary legal figure, judicial figure, Sir David Penry Davy and his widow is here watching. Put, he carried on for some time, but he retired, so she tells me, because he was so fearful of falling asleep on the bench. <laughs> and um, I have to say that that is something I can really sympathise with. Mm. When I'm sitting there and sometimes, I don't know, we all... all Judges do that normally. I know, but you do it, don't you? Do you ever get these waves of fatigue coming over? Yeah, Yeah. I fall asleep in my suit. And and like him, I'm not prepared to risk that happening. A lot of it is about how we feel about how how we project ourselves amongst our colleagues. There's there's a huge amount of pride. Yes. And you don't want to be in a position whereby people are whispering behind you. Don't want to. You don't want. He's you, not. Oh, 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 you don't. Oh, you don't. Nick is not up to it anymore. You don't want to be regarded as impaired. So but you are impaired, aren't you? I know, but he, he said it's a question of pride, isn't it? That like I'm joining the rest of you in July. So the broad message is one: fess up, be brave, yes. say it, say it. You then get access to the law, and your employer has to help you. 
and probably from all of us, if, it, if it's too difficult to transfer, perhaps look for a, a new career and some extraordinary things will happen around this table. So I think it's quite uplifting. Mm. That's actually quite an optimistic note on which to end. Jeremy, would you like to bring us down again? No, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Kathleen-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lukat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at Movers and Six. That's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>